chapter 6 this morning. So if you would, please take your Bibles and find your place. We have examined Jesus' message recorded in Luke 6, beginning in verse 20 and continuing through verse 49 in the end of the chapter. And it compares to the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, showing the implications of the rule of Jesus in the lives of his committed followers. And you always need to remember when you read the sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, or this sermon here in Luke chapter 6, that the committed follower of Jesus is his audience. That is who he's made eye contact with. It's whom he has gathered around him to preach and to teach this kingdom manifesto, as we've called it. The first section of the message identifies the attitudes of those who live for and build God's kingdom. We saw four pairs of attitudes that are set in contrast to one another. The contrasts represent the themes of dependence, Desire, delight, and drive. We saw that the committed follower of Jesus evidences Jesus' rule by depending on God in recognition of his own utter insufficiency. He or she also demonstrates a desire for God, a strong appetite for God in his ways. Then the committed follower of Jesus lives with delight in the Lord which in turn creates a holy dissatisfaction with the world. And it reveals itself most prominently through grief over personal sin and longing for the totality of our salvation, which is experienced when we enter heaven. And then finally, the committed follower of Jesus possesses the proper drive to please and honor Jesus first. In the second section, we identify the actions of the committed followers of Jesus. The committed follower of Jesus really hears. He doesn't just hear. Do you remember the difference? To really hear is to listen attentively, to listen intently, intelligently, and obediently. It's what James describes in James chapter 1, the hearer of the word and doer. That is the person that Jesus is looking for. That person has a commitment to Jesus that's demonstrated through three primary actions or qualities that are evidenced in his or her life. He or she loves genuinely, lends generously, and lives graciously. Now we come to the final section of this message, God's Kingdom Manifesto. This section of the message contains a series of 
illustrations, even parables, we could say. Word pictures as Jesus provides, in essence, a warning, a caution. Look with me at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse number 39. And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. And why call ye me Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house, and digged deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. In concluding his sermon, Jesus presented a series of warnings. Warnings are part of life. We see warnings posted everywhere and on everything. And I had intended to put some warning signs for you up on the screen, and frankly, I'm getting older. I had a birthday this week, and it just slipped my mind. So there aren't warning signs for you to see. But you know what I'm talking about. Anything you buy comes with some sort of a warning label or warning sticker. I even found some humorous ones I intended to share with you. One was a picture of a, a baby stroller. And attached to the baby stroller, and these were legitimate ones, okay? Attached to the baby stroller was a sticker that said, Caution, do not fold with the baby still in the stroller. As if we need that help. There was a warning label attached to an iron that said, Caution, do not use to iron a shirt that you're wearing. 
I would hope you wouldn't try that. We see some warning labels like that, and perhaps we get a kick out of them. They make us laugh. But there are other warning labels that are very serious, that we need to take very seriously. If you're driving down the road and coming to a bridge that crosses a stream or a river, goes up over the interstate, and you see a sign that says, Caution, Bridge Out. You might do well to stop rather than driving through and going over a bridge that is not there for whatever reason. We need to take warnings seriously, especially when the warning is given to us by none other than our Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to the exhortation of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 5, 15. Paul wrote these words. He said, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. What is that exhortation in Ephesians 5.15 all about? It's simply this. Paul challenges us to be careful, to be cautious, very much like a warning accomplishes. Paul is telling us as you are walking through your life, see that you walk circumspectly, carefully, cautiously, with your eyes going back and forth, being sure that you're not about to step into a pit, that you're not about to stumble over some type of obstruction in your path. Be cautious with where you place your feet. Several days ago at home, Brooklyn was eating a meal, and it was in a glass dish. And when she stood up to carry the dish to the sink, she dropped the bowl, and it shattered all over the floor. Well, you can imagine the instruction that I gave her is she had bare feet. Be careful. Step cautiously. Don't step on a piece of glass. And to do that, she had to look at the floor and be very careful about where she was stepping to make sure she did not pierce her foot with a piece of glass. And so it is here, Paul tells us to walk carefully. Jesus is essentially telling his followers to be careful, to take warning, to be Cautious. Each of these warnings that Jesus gives us challenge us in a very particular way. Jesus challenges us to self-examination. You see, it's unfortunate that we read this warning. Or the warning like we read at the end of Matthew chapter 7, which compares to this. And we make it personal. We look out there. We look at others outside of ourselves. But Jesus' warning here is not given to instruct us on how to examine somebody else. Jesus' warning given here is a warning that essentially is a you need to examine yourself. So as we look at the final message of 
uh, section of Jesus' message here, I want to challenge you with this message to honestly practice self-examination in four areas. Number one is this, examine your following. Examine your following. Jesus presents a thought that produces two questions for us in verses 39 and 40. When he asks these questions, can the blind lead the blind? If that happens, both will fall into a ditch. And then in verse 40, he says the, the disciple, the student, is not above his master. But everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. In these verses, Jesus prompts two questions in us. Number one is this, who are you following? And then number two is, how are you leading those following you? He uses that illustration, can the blind lead the blind? Now Jesus isn't demeaning physically blind people. We know that Jesus loved and healed them. Many times as Jesus went through his ministry, when he came across someone who was physically blind, he healed them of that physical limitation. Here, though, he's not demeaning blind people. He is using that physical limitation of blindness to illustrate a spiritual reality. Some of you have or know people who have vision problems. My dad is essentially blind in one of his eyes. I don't remember if it's his left or his blind eye. But when my dad was younger, he was shot in the eye by someone with a BB gun. And spent about a week in the hospital as they tried to keep that eye covered to make sure he wouldn't use it to see if it would heal. And he, he just really doesn't have any good use in that eye. If he were to cover his good eye and try to look out the bad eye, I think he'd, he'd basically just see complete blur. Well, I'm not in any situation going to follow my dad if his good eye is covered anywhere. I don't care what the situation is. If my dad covers his good eye and is just trying to see out of his bad eye and says, Hey, Mike! follow me from here to there i'm not doing it i just don't have trust in that i'm not going to expect my dad to lead me well using his bad eye why because he cannot see clearly where he is going he'll stumble he'll fall into a hole walk into a ditch step in front of a moving vehicle i don't know but he just can't clearly see where he is going jesus showed that it's foolish to follow someone who cannot clearly see the way and within context we need to understand that he applied this specifically to the pharisees that's found in matthew 15 verse 14 there jesus 
warned his disciples about the Pharisees and his disciples still had that kind of view of the Pharisees that many had. These are the righteous people of of Israel. And so they asked Jesus, don't you know that you've offended the Pharisees? And Jesus said these words to his disciples, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. Both shall fall into the ditch. What was the ultimate problem of the Pharisees? Their blindness. I'll tell you what their biggest problem was. They didn't follow Jesus. In fact, the opposite was true. They opposed Jesus. It's important to follow someone who can see. And someone who can see represents someone who follows Jesus. So ask yourself those two questions today. Number one, who are you following? Following those who themselves follow Jesus identifies an important task of the believer. Many times Jesus challenged us, Paul challenged us in places to pay careful attention to those who you're following. Paul used terminology like this, mark those among you who are, if you will, a perfect example, a mature, spiritual example. He said this about himself, follow me as I follow Christ. If I stop following Jesus, don't follow me anymore. Who is the perfect example, one who is mature and spiritual that I should mark and pattern myself after? It is those who watch and follow Jesus. One said it this way, a disciple was much like a student with the added element of following and patterning after the master or teacher. In this way, the, the, the student, the disciple, would never be greater than the teacher, yet everyone who is perfectly trained is like his teacher. We will become like those we follow, so we must decide to choose good teachers to follow. Who are you following? Follow those who follow Jesus. That is an important task for us as believers. But above all, follow Jesus personally. You follow Jesus. So Jesus encourages us, warns us. Examine your following. Take time to honestly assess who you are following. Then think about who and how you are leading those who follow you. You understand, don't you, that everyone, without exception, is both a leader and a follower. Sometimes we talk about ourselves or others as, well, I'm a follower. So-and-so natural-born leader. Well, that, that, that child of mine is a follower, and that one's a leader. The reality is we all lead, and we all follow to some extent. So be careful about who you're following, and think about how you are leading those who are following you. 
Are you following Jesus personally? Are you looking at others as examples, those who are following Jesus? And then, who are you leading those who are following you to follow? Are you leading others to follow Jesus? Examine your following. Number two, I want you to see this. Examine your focus. Examine your focus, verses 41 and 42. Jesus uses almost humorous exaggeration, doesn't he? When he talks about a speck in your brother's eye while you've got a moat in yours. I mean, if you can picture this, the, the, the comparison we could make would be the one who has a speck of sawdust in their eye and you have a two-by-four sticking out of yours. I mean, it's a humorous exaggeration that Jesus uses here. Why does he use such exaggeration? It's because he's warning us about our natural human tendency to focus on others rather than ourselves. Let me illustrate. I'm sure that many, if not all of you, have had this experience. If you've ever worked with children in a Sunday school, children's church, vacation Bible school, or similar setting for any length of time, if you at home practice family devotions or praying before meals, and you, you spend time praying and thanking Jesus for the meal, you have heard something similar to this. Pastor Mike... Pastor Mike, Joe opened his eyes while we were praying. And you've probably responded in a similar way to this. Well, how do you know Joe had his eyes open? Or, well, doesn't that mean you had your eyes open too? Just yesterday evening. My wife called the children over for our dinner. They were all sitting on the couch, and she said, kids, come over to the table for dinner. And I think Brooklyn got up and started moving to the table. Meanwhile, Evelyn and Michael kept their place on the couch. And almost within a, a few seconds, Evelyn, who herself is still sitting on the couch, says, Mommy, Michael's not getting up to go to the table. Isn't this natural tendency for children? But friends, isn't it true that it's not just children that that's naturally true of? We as adults have that same natural tendency. We naturally recognize sin in others while often failing to see it in ourselves. We're so good, aren't we, at spotting the sin of others in their attitudes, their actions, their words. We have conversations with them at church or in the marketplace or in the workplace. And they say some things and it's, it's gossip or it's unkind or it's untrue. And we're very quick to point it out or, or at least to recognize it, right? We go home and we tell our spouse about how, how so-and-so said this at work, and it's just not true. It's false. So-and-so said this at church, and it was gossiping about so-and-so. 
and we have trouble seeing our own sin. Writing about this tendency, Paul, pastor and author Paul David Tripp writes these words. He says, sin is deceptive. And who does it deceive first? You ever thought about that? Sin is deceptive, but who does it deceive first? This guy right here. The guy I looked at in the mirror this morning. It deceives me first. He went on and he wrote, I have no difficulty recognizing the sin of the people around me, but I can be quite unprepared when others point out my sin. Sin deceives 10 out of 10 people reading this article. Spiritual blindness like, isn't like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind. So you compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are also blind to their own blindness. They think they see well, so the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. And friends, this is the natural tendency. You say, now wait a minute, I'm not spiritually blind. Here's what he means by spiritual blindness. You're blind to your own sin. You recognize it in everybody else, but you don't see your own. What is Jesus doing? When he talks about the speck in your brother's eye and the beam in your own eye, is Jesus saying that you should never at any time or in any place edify and exhort brothers and sisters in Christ? No, because we have that exhortation other places. We're, we're commanded to do that. What Jesus is saying is this. You are so focused on the failures of others that you don't even recognize your own. It's unhealthy to remember and relive failures of the past that are confessed and forsaken. That's true. But it's also un unhealthy to be more focused on the attitudes and actions of others than on your own. Yes, you should be willing to edify and exhort others, but you should do so in full recognition of your own life. Listen to how Paul said it in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Can I ask you a question today? When you have recognized sin in others, have you responded to it that way? How do you often react when you spot sin in others? Is it to go home and talk to other people about it? To complain about it to some other brother or sister in Christ who's not even involved in the situation? Or is it in meekness, considering yourself, that you have temptations too, 
that you've been overtaken in a fault too, that you lovingly and graciously edify, build up, exhort for the sake of restoring, for bringing help and healing, bearing one another's burdens. That was commanded within this context of seeing another person, a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, to bear the burden with them. But that's not often how we respond to the sin of others, is it? It's not often, unfortunately, how we've seen it taken care of in different settings and circumstances, even within the church. This is how we're commanded. Jesus says, don't, don't pick out the sawdust in your brother's eye when you've got a two-by-four sticking out of yours. He's not telling us not to edify and exhort. He's telling us, Focus on yourself. Don't be so focused on the sin of others that you are, are unaware or blind to the sin of yourself. I want you to think about this statement today. The people who are most gracious with others about their faults are the people who are most honest with themselves about their own. Let me say that again. The people who are most gracious with others about their faults are the people who are the most honest with themselves about their own. And that's what Jesus is calling us to in this text. Number three, I want you to see this. Examine your following, examine your focus. Number three, examine your fruit. Examine your fruit, verses 43 to 45. This text along with the comparable text in Matthew chapter 7, have been misunderstood, misapplied, misused so many times in different settings and contexts. It's my desire this morning to bring you several observations that we need to, to notice about this portion of the passage that are true to the context, that are true to what Jesus is, is stating here. First... The Bible teaches the unrealistic possibility of sinless perfection. That's not Jesus' point here. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? What does Jesus say in verses 43 to 45? A good tree can't bring forth what? Corrupt fruit, bad fruit. Good trees only bring forth good fruit. Bad trees only bring forth bad fruit. And here's how that can be misused. If you truly know Christ, you'll only do good things. Well, friends, has there ever been a believer in Jesus Christ who has always only done good? No. If you're here this morning and you say, I, I'm a Christ believer, I'm a Christ follower, and I've only ever done good. Can I see your hand this morning? Okay, that's what I thought. I'm in that boat with you, okay? I've not always only done good. I struggle to get through a day and only do good. Jesus' point here is not sinless perfection, and that's some litmus test for if you are truly saved. But then I want you to see this, the second observation. Others can see the evidence of your life, and you can see the evidence of others' lives. 
but only God can accurately and completely know and judge people. You can see the evidence of my life. You can see my attitudes. You can see my actions. I've been told that I wear my, my attitude on my sleeve. You know what that means, right? If, if pastor's upset, it's obvious he's upset. If pastor is joyful and floating among the clouds, it's obvious, you know it. You can see the evidence of my life, and I can see the evidence of your life. But only God can completely and accurately judge the heart. Isn't that essentially what Jeremiah says? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Friends, be careful if you think you can even know and judge your own heart. Isn't it amazing that we can't know and judge our own hearts, but we think we can judge and know other people's hearts so well? We can't even know and judge our own heart. But then what does Jeremiah go on to say next? The Lord trieth the reins. He knows. He judges completely and accurately. Jesus here is not giving us a basis to do what he commanded us not to do just a few verses earlier. What did Jesus tell us a few verses earlier? Judge not. He's not now giving us a test. Okay, here's how to judge others. Remember, this, this section of the message is about what? Self-examination. Self-examination. It's not examine somebody else's fruit. It's what? Examine your fruit. Third observation is this. If you believe that being a believer and being a disciple are distinct issues, and I've talked about that, you know where I stand on that. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're a disciple, a fully committed follower of Jesus then you must also believe that the tree and fruit illustration can apply to the discussion of unbeliever or believer, as well as the issue of casual follower and committed follower. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? A bad tree could identify an unbeliever. Good tree, a believer. But it could also apply to the casual believer versus the committed believer follower of Jesus. Fourth, actions and words are the products of the heart. Isn't that what Jesus says here? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And he says that right after he's talked about what we do. So understand this morning your actions, my actions, because it's examine your fruit, so I'll talk about me. My actions in the words of my mouth flow from where? My heart. If I do good, it flows out of my heart. If I say things that are right and good and, and wholesome, it flows out of my heart. But the same is also true. If I do something that is wrong, that's flowed out of my heart. If I say something that is, that is unhealthy, that is rude, that is unkind, that is destructive, that has flowed out of my heart. We said last week that ultimately every sin 
could be concisely stated this way, a failure to love God and to love others well. When you do wrong, when you say things that are wrong, you have, at least in that situation, in that moment of time, failed to love God and love others as you should. And then fifth, I want you to see this. Fifth observation about this part of the passage. The basis of viewing this teaching from Jesus flows from his earlier teaching. Okay, so what does that mean? What, then constitutes good fruit if jesus has just told us about the attitudes and the actions of those who are committed followers of jesus then what would you say jesus has in his mind when he says a good tree brings forth good fruit what would good fruit then be there were three actions of the committed follower of jesus what were they? Love genuinely. Lend generously. Live graciously. And just a few verses later, Jesus says, a good fruit brings forth good fruit. Well, I don't know what good fruit is. I'll tell you what it is. Love genuinely. Lend generously. Live graciously. That's the good fruit he has in his mind. Now, are there other good fruits? Yes, there are. But in this text, in this message, Jesus says, here are the three qualities of a committed follower of Jesus. The committed follower of Jesus who lives for and build God's king, builds God's kingdom, loves genuinely, lends generously and lives graciously a good tree will bring forth good fruit what does that mean it means i'm going to love genuinely lend generously and live graciously that's good fruit and when i'm a believer in jesus christ who's a committed follower of jesus christ that will be the character of my life now again am i going to be perfect yes or no no but the character of my life should be those qualities. That good fruit coming from a good tree. I think the best approach to a passage like this follows the previous in context, interpretation, and application. In other words, Jesus here is not giving us a justification to judge others, but an exhortation to judge yourself. How does your fruit identify you? Does your fruit identify you as a believer? Let me again put it in context here. Does my fruit identify me as a believer who is a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ? And then remember what Paul exhorted the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Do you know what he exhorted them? Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Let that exhortation influence you to examine yourself. Examine your following. Examine your focus. Examine your fruit. Finally, examine your foundation. Verses 46 to 49. 
I saw a picture. Again, I intended to have it up there for you to see. But it was a picture from 1927. And this picture was taken along the Jordan River over in the Middle East, in, in the Jordan River Valley, following an earthquake in the region. And as they went through in 1927, examining the dwellings, the houses, the buildings, some had collapsed, while others, even in the same vicinity, had not. What was it that made the difference? The houses that did not collapse were the houses that were built on solid rock. They, they were built on bedrock. They were built on solid ground. While the houses and buildings... And you should have seen this picture because it wasn't just the house was falling over. There was literally a hole in the earth and the house had fallen into the hole. Because it was built on soft soil with no, nothing strong underneath it to hold it up when that earthquake took place. It's the same as happens to your life if it's built on a soft foundation when storms come your way. And that's what Jesus says here. One commentator said of Jesus' words, Jesus drew an analogy between responses to his words in building a house. The one who obeys what Jesus says builds a house on the rock, while the one who does not heed his words builds upon the earth. The house on the rock stands and the other falls. Everyone builds their life on some foundation. Get that. Everyone builds their lives on some foundation. But no other foundation will stand the test of life as well as Jesus Christ. I understand this morning that's not to say that the believer and committed follower of Jesus will not grieve, experience sorrow, or temptation. You can be a believer, committed, a fully committed follower of Jesus, and still grieve, still experience sorrow hardship experience temptation however the believer and committed follower will endure in, and maintain faith in Jesus and will continue following Jesus will be like what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 listen to what Paul testified we are troubled on every side yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, what was Paul saying? We experience trouble. We have hardships. We grieve. We sorrow. We experience confusion. Not understanding what we're facing and what's going on in our lives. We face hardship. We experience temptation. We, we are cast down. 
we experience sorrow. But we endure. We keep walking. We keep reaching out to our Savior. We, we keep striving after Him. We keep seeking Him. We keep following Him. We don't lose faith. We don't lose heart. And ultimately, you've heard me say this before. Ultimately, the truest test of your faith is how your faith responds to the storms and difficulties of life. If you believe in Christ and you're a fully committed follower of Jesus, you are digging deep, building your life on him as your foundation. And when the storms of life come your way, you might experience grief. You might have sorrow. Face temptation. To walk away. To throw in the towel on faith and following Jesus. But the fully committed follower of Jesus who builds his, his life on the foundation of Jesus endures. Keeps the faith. Keeps following. Build your life on Jesus. All of it, all of your life. Build on Jesus. He is sufficient for everything. Examine your following. Examine your focus. Examine your fruit. Examine your foundation. These warnings, these cautions from Jesus will illumine so much about your faith, about if you're following Jesus, how you're following Jesus, how committed you are, will reveal so much about where you are spiritually. If you will honestly examine yourself.